Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players and the musical times and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these northern musicians who performed in northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. Wally is one of those people that I feel truly privileged to call my friend. He has lived a few different lifetimes of his own, starting out as a Hudson Bay manager, a pilot, a CBC radio announcer, and as the first Indigenous MP for the Northwest Territories. Even at 84 years old, he can recall names, places, dates, and any other circumstance to complement the story. Through all of his lifetimes, the fiddle was his one constant companion. He never missed an opportunity to jam with musicians or to mentor fiddlers, young or old, inspiring them with his enthusiasm, his desire to learn and improve his musicianship, and his unshakable belief in the power of music. Wally is a grand storyteller, carrying forward the ancestry, the history, the traditions and the musics of his own family and of the Gwich'in people. I can remember hearing Wally Firth, our Member of Parliament on the CBC's World at Six in the early 1970s. As a kid, I didn't recognize the important role Wally played. Reflecting back on it now, I can see it was a dynamic era of change with the development of government, the hearings for the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline, the genesis of the Dene Nation, and other significant events that would shape the future of the North. I met Wally much later in life through my partner in the late 1980s. One day, a beautifully beaded Gwich'in baby belt arrived in the mail. It was a gift from Wally to celebrate our firstborn daughter. By that time, Wally had left politics and was living in the Yukon before settling in Victoria, British Columbia. Whenever I'm in Victoria, I visit Wally. I find him sitting in one of the comfortable armchairs in the main foyer of the seniors' care home, visiting, taking phone calls, and generally holding court until mealtime. The other elders in the care home endearingly refer to him as Chief. We'll jump into the interview where we were talking about some of the more well-known fiddlers in the North. Did you talk to Richard Lafferty? 
Yes, I did. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Richard. Food. Richard knows the history. He lived it, and there's nobody left in Providence that I know of that uh, still play. A few guitar men, no fiddlers. Yeah, Angus Bolio. Angus is uh, one of the few I know who does a little bit of jo um, clogging. Yeah, my dad clogged very with moccasins, believe it. <laughs> yeah, and he was damn good. And I've never ever heard anybody else can clog like that. But I saw one day I was watching Angus, and Angus clogged, and he had his own style, but it was quite good. Yeah. So, where would that clogging have come from? Well, it comes back from way back when before guitarists, eh? And so that, that was one that, you see, like when my dad played the fiddle, his whole personality goes into it. He held the fiddle on, the, on, the, on his arm like so, and he, and he had complete control of that bow, and it was all in the wrist, see? And, uh, and he, was, he would clog. It was really something to, when I think back on it, you know, it was great. I don't know where it began, but I'm sure that a lot of the older play players would have clogged. I hear about it, you know, but and if each person would have their own individual style of clogging, eh? Yeah. Maybe more from the French Canadian, uh, as, as opposed to the Métis, long yeah. Manitoba, Saskatchewan. Yeah, and they they had a a style. Of fiddling that nobody but nobody can uh, can do it now, and there's no way it you, it can be taught. You can't teach it. It was uh, uh, really that uh, I don't know what's the right term to use to try to explain it. And there's none of it on record, as far as I know. Um, it's kind of a lilt that fits fits in with their playing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, like you say, uh, would be. Uh, individually stylistic and it would be accompanying yeah. the playing and so, yeah. yeah yeah and I have uh, I'll show you another thing on the on the on the net where I was recorded somebody recorded me oh long time ago at Midway Lake Music Fest yeah and it was it was good and it, it's a good story behind that because the tune I played was one that was um, was um, written by Joe, Joe Blondin from Fort Norman. He never gave it a title. I don't know what it is. We called it yesterday before. But anyway, it's, it's a really fine country waltz. Yeah, and it, it's, it's recorded and it's, it's done quite well. Charlie Peter, he was the main fiddler at Old Crow. He and Paul Bencassi, and get ready for the New Year's dance, and then they'll try to put a fiddle together. Oh my goodness, there's no, we don't have enough strings. There was a visitor, this guy from down south somewhere, and they said, do you have a link carcass? Yeah, there's one out there somewhere. Just go bring in that link carcass. So they brought it in overnight, thawed it out. The guy opened it up and pulled the guts out of the thing. And the next thing you know, he, he had some gut strings. He made gut strings for the fiddle. But the bow didn't have any horsehair. 
So how am I going to fix that? So he got some fishing lines, and he used some fishing line to make a bow. And so got strings from the link and fishing line, and that's all they had to put it together for the New Year's dance. But the like, I like the history about what my dad was saying, which I think it was even before we got guitars. Anyway, there was only one fiddle shared between Arnick Red and McPherson. So the New Year's dance tonight, and that's the main dance of the year. You see, his dad was a Scotsman, and uh, dad learned a whole lot of Scottish music and dances and so on, so he he'd play for the dance. So the fiddle is in Arctic Red, and the dance is tomorrow night. So dad got up four o'clock in the morning, hitched up his dog team, went over to Arctic Red, found the fiddle, he didn't have a case, there's no case for the fiddle, so his cousin was there, said, lend me your towel, I need the bath towel to wrap the fiddle on. So he put the fiddle in a towel and bring it over back to McPherson, got back in time to start a dance, then played till four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, they don't make them like that anymore. Well, you know, I often wondered about Dad didn't tell me a whole lot about how he was able to learn all these beautiful tunes. And he grew up in the early 1900s. He was born in 1895. So when he was born and raised, there was no radio, no, no tape recorders or any kind of stuff like that. But um, he was able to learn from the Hudson's Bay um, craftsmen. See, when the Hudson Bay Company was setting up the, the post share up and down the Mackenzie River, they built a house for the manager and they built a store and a warehouse and so they had these craftsmen, carpenters and blacksmiths, I remember those two in particular, and some of them were good fiddlers. So they were able, Dad was able to learn from them. And then the guys would stay in the, the community a couple of years until they built the home for the manager, a, a store and a warehouse and the fur baling equipment and then they moved to the next community. Well from McPherson the guys moved over to Fort Yukon. Hudson Bay had a post there but they had to leave when the, when the, the, the Alaska was sold the Russians sold that at 1867, I think it was, or somewhere, 1860, somewhere, sold that to the, to the American government for pennies. And so the Bay had to leave. So that, that was interesting because uh, they closed down this place in uh, Fort Yukon. They had two little posts, one in a place called Rampart House, and the other one was Lapeer House. And they had to close that down because it was too expensive to operate, to get uh, merchandise, to get trade goods. They had to bring it down the Mackenzie River, across the mountains, by packing or by dog team in the winter. So they closed. And that's where my grandfather worked when he first came to McPherson. And John Firth, my dad's father, didn't have any music, he didn't dance, didn't sing, didn't play, but, but my dad was a wonderful fiddler. He played uh, for years and years when we had a small community hall. 
for the main dances he would play and he would play until midnight and at midnight he'd put the fiddle down and look around for me by this time I was starting to play you see so I'd come over and pick up the fiddle and all the old people would leave and <laughs> just the just the young people would stay behind so I would play for the the waltz the shartish and country uh, waltzes mostly so that's what and I played for a few square dance that was it but dad played for all of the what we call the the old mostly Scottish dances one of them I remember was uh, like duck dance which is a well-known dance and uh, he played very very well indeed and he taught me a wee bit about the fiddle and he told me a little bit about learning a fiddle and the thing was at home he played his what he enjoyed and then when he went to the dance he played the dance music but at home it was a different set of tunes that he played and I learned two or three of them which I played and I have yet to hear anybody else play play those tunes and I'll give you an example of that later on the piano that's what I'm playing now because I don't play the fiddle mm -hmm. anymore so those would be the Scottish tunes uh, I'm not sure he never told me the title so I call it my dad I called it Williams Minuet <laughs> yeah it's a it's a beautiful old tune that one and uh, Kingdom Coming which came out of the American Civil War and then um, Darcy's Dooley I don't know where that came from but those are three I, l I remember learning from my dad and I did play a little bit for a little while the Red River Jig which is a very special tune and very very hard to play it properly and you've got to be a good fiddler to be able to do that and right now the only person I know alive today who can play it quite well is uh, Stanley Bolio in Hay River. He put it on tape somewhere. Yeah, it's out there. Yeah. Dad said um, he used to uh, get uh, mandolin strings. The E and the A would use mandolin strings. Those days, that was what was av available. And the two bigger ones, just regular fiddle strings. And uh, the bow, he said, you, you all need to wash the bow at least once a year. And then to reeve rosin back on that bow was not easy. So you powdered the rosin, put it in the moose hide and like this and pull the bow through that and get it started. Yeah. So it was interesting, you know, how he held the he held the fiddle on his wrist on his arm like this, not out under his chin like a modern day. And the, oh, how he had to handle the bow, you could see all the movement was in the wrist. You didn't see this, you just saw that. So the guys come in from Old Crow, Aklavik, Arctic Red, to learn from my dad. And there was one fiddler from Arctic Red, he was my dad's um, nephew, Fred Cardinal. He too, he was, uh, you know, oh, I don't know, about 40 years old, I think, when I, when I first met him. And he played my dad's style, yeah. So he was the last one I know. And other fiddlers at that time who were well known were Joe Greenland in the Klavik, um, Johnny McPherson in Fort Simpson, and Chiga Barnes in 
Fort Smith, those were the three fiddlers along the Mackenzie way back then, all about at the same time, same age at that uh, time in the in the 1920s and 30s, yes, 40s, yeah, yeah. And the other thing is we don't have the fancy, the uh, poetic style square dance calling, which was great. As not, nobody else uh, uh, that I know of, Fred Blake and McPherson was the last guy I know who, who had that style calling. It was great to hear them. Yeah. Talking about getting mandolin strings yeah. or, or even instruments and bows, how would you go about getting those or did they just, were, were the, the Hudson Bay people bringing them with them and leaving them behind or how, how did you actually acquire an instrument to play? Oh yeah, that was, uh, it wasn't easy. I remember the George Robert telling a story about how he managed to get a fiddle. Uh, there was a guy by the name of, uh, they called him Old Man Blake. He had a trading post in uh, Husky River. So um, George gave him some money to get him a fiddle. And I waited a couple of years. And one day George said, uh, Old Man Blake said, come and pick up your fiddle. So I got in my canoe and I paddled down to Husky River which is, uh, what, 10, 12 miles away. Picked up my fiddle and come back home. So I couldn't wait. <laughs> so partway I land, I went ashore and I took up the fiddle, tried, didn't know how to tune it. And so I tried anyway. Then I got home and I'm trying to learn to play the fiddle and we live in a tent. And uh, my mother said, put that thing away. Oh God, why? So I moved my tent quite a ways back and I tried to play and ask and I said, can you still hear me? <laughs> he worked hard at it to learn how to play. But after a while he did play some, uh, never, not real um, up to the, the style or level of some of the old timers, but he, he loved the music, no question about it. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how, there weren't very many fiddles around, like I said, even when uh, when I was playing as a teenager, I think there were two fiddles in the community, and it was actually owned by the community. And uh, you never worried about it getting broken or any people respected the instrument. So they're going to dance, and where's the fiddle? Oh, it's over at Joe's place. You got to go pick it up. And uh, people looked after it. That was it. Yeah. And then. Uh, when I was when I started, by that time there were three or four guitars in town. My brother Angus, Jim Blake, William Smith, and uh, Matthew Kendi. Those were the only guitar players, and so it, it took a little while for people to. But whoever can tried. And, People didn't own an instrument, but they were able to borrow one and, and learn. Eh? So that the music was really, really important to the people. What year would, would the guitars have shown up? Guitars would have showed up around, oh, say about, about 1930, somewhere around in there. Yeah. Yeah. Jim Blake was a good, good guitar man. Yeah. There was, Oh, guy, he died of tuberculosis. We had an outbreak of 
epidemic of tuberculosis. We lost some really fine people. Would that, would that have been around the same time, the 30s, or would no, that have been no, later? The, the, the tuberculosis was in the 50s. So getting instruments is, is, is one thing. So when you talk about uh, uh, Blake being like one of the better guitar players, you have to hear other guitar players play so that you can uh, imitate yeah, them, right? It, so um, that, that's <coughs> the most, most often that's the way you learn, you learn from others. But when you're, on, you're, you're the only guy with the guitar, you have to do it yourself. Yeah. So by that point in time, would radio, would you have been able the to... The radio was like just coming on. You see, uh, Alaska had two powerful radio stations, KFAR and KNI, Anchorage, Alaska, and Fairbanks. But uh, there was also a very powerful radio station down in the, in the States, uh, XERF, Del Rio, Texas. And uh, they played all country music. And uh, it was a powerful station, 50,000 watts on uh, AM. And so they played a lot of uh, country music and uh, soul, uh, um, what you call, snake oil or whatever, you send your name and address and this name and we'll send you a bottle of this which can cure anything. <laughs> so that was their ad and uh, but it, it was great to have that XEF, XERF Del Rio, Texas and uh, then after that closed down by that time some other stations started to pop up here and there and then very, very slowly, the, uh, the Northwest Territories had here and there one or two little community stations. That, uh, where they got equipment, I don't know. But they had the volunteers and people would donate the, towards the maintenance and running of the, the famous one was in Aklavik. C-H-A-K-Aklavik, your friendly voice of the Arctic. And then there was C, was it CKBY, Yellowknife? Yeah, the golden voice of the Arctic. And uh, Fort Smith had a private station, and Hay River. Simpson had a very um, successful community radio station for quite a few years. Yeah. That helped the, the culture to people that could. Uh, share their music and their stories and so on. And be able to learn new songs or, yeah. or oh, yeah. play along and get better mm -hmm. and learn how to play. Yeah. So the radio was, was coming along. Would there be times that you can remember when they wouldn't have been coming through to play music, but like you say, the Hudson Bay guys would be there to do something else, build buildings or uh -huh. they'd be trapping or traveling through the community. Yeah. So the, would that have been going on as well? In the summer. There are one or two uh, fiddlers and accordion and guitar players who were working as deckhands or, or uh, firemen on the steamboat. The, it was a big event whenever the steamboat or came into McPherson. Uh, they unload their freight, everything, and then they put one whole night into dancing and having a great time in, the, in our hall. And, the, and here you would hear different square dance callers different musicians. There's a 
big occasion until next year. Yeah, I remember one guy who was just, uh, I think his name was George Ludet from Fort Providence. He was a well-known square dance caller. And uh, I don't remember the names of the, of the fiddlers, but uh, what's his name who plays now in uh, Fort Goodhope? Um, Thomas Manuel. He worked on the steamboat as a deckhand. And I don't remember meeting him when, at that time. But years and years later, he told me, he said, you know, I was working on the boat and it was raining, but the guy said, there's a dance on up at the, in McPherson, up at the hall. So I went up and poked my head in there to watch. He said, there you were, you're playing rubber dolly. <laughs> That's a long time ago, yeah. And that was the first tune I ever played to, for, for, for people to dance to, to my music. I played a rubber dolly and my cousin Edward Blake would play a guitar. Edward and Herbert Furt, they were two main guitar players for me, yeah. The steamboat would have been coming from? Fort Smith. Forts all the way. Yeah, yeah. Two, two boats, first boat and second boat. The first boat would come in about, oh, first week in July, and then would go all the way back and come back. Oh, no, there were two, two steamboats, the distributor and the Mackenzie, and there would be two trips anyway into McPherson to bring in the freight and all the, everything that's needed for the whole year. Yeah. And to take out probably pelts and furs yep. and stuff like that too, yep. and whatever that's right. was being shipped, shipped back south yeah. in Hudson Bay. Mm -hmm. And that was the first, my first job as a trainee with the bay was to do fur baling. I fur baled thousands and thousands and thousands of pelts. I used to put 800 muskrat to a bale in the trapping season, and then I would put a thousand pelts per bale when you're hunting by 22 rifles. And Till today, I remember addressing the fur balers to the fur sales department, Hudson Bay Company, fur sales department, 465 Dorchester Street, Montreal, PQ. Yeah. You still remember that address? Yeah, I wrote that address <coughs> over and over. Thousands and thousands and thousands yeah, of times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's, I see those fur balers are still there. This looks like a contraption, but it's quite a genuine thing to use for fur bailing. Well, you probably get pretty good at it after, uh, oh, yeah, after a few thousand it. or tens of thousands. Yeah. This concludes part one of the Musicians of the Midnight Sun podcast interview with Wally Firth. You can scroll through the show notes to listen to part two. I'm Pat Brady. Thanks for listening.